Welcome to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. This is Pint Glass Football. We talk NFL and college football. I'm your host, Brad Fowler, and McKenzie Brewing is the official beer of Pint Glass Football. Follow them at McKenzie Brewing. Follow us at pintglassfootball.com. If you're new to the show, hit that subscribe button. What's up, PGF Nation? We are back with another great show today. Are the Patriots finished? Is Joe Burrow back? Are the Cowboys a paper tiger plus more NFL Week 5 takeaways? Is Oklahoma a championship contender plus college football Week 6 takeaways? And a lot more to get to today. But joining me to break it all down, my co-host, Alex Higdon. Alex, what is going on? Hey, Brad. What a week in the NFL and college football. We need to talk about everything that we saw and the lack of coaching, forget the play, the lack of coaching that we saw. I mean, there's a lot to get to. Alex, before we jump into all this NFL and college football talk, some big news recently. Colts running back Jonathan Taylor agrees to a new three-year, $42 million contract. I think it's safe to say we were both shocked when we heard this news here. This was a huge storyline, a huge narrative this offseason about running backs trying to get long-term deals. Players like Saquon Barkley and Josh Jacobs really lost their bids to secure long-term deals this offseason. What do you make of this deal getting done by the Colts, and would you have made this deal? Well, first off, very surprised. I mean, we were literally recording the part in real time. Jim Ursay and Jonathan Taylor as agent were literally in a war of words. So I did not see this coming at all. But three years, $42 million extension, $26.5 million guaranteed, averages out to about $14 million a year. This is a big win in the running back market because we just watched the two biggest guys in Saquon Barkley and Jacobs not get deals, simply get a little bit more than what the franchise was worth, but not get big deals. So this is the biggest deal since Nick Chubb signed his deal three and a half years ago. I don't know if I would have done this. I haven't taken a look at the Colts books because I think there's a lot that you're going to need to, a lot more you're going to need to surround Anthony Richardson with. However, it's a three-year deal. It looks like they're giving him half 26 guaranteed. So maybe after two years, they can get out of the deal if it doesn't look right. So it looks like it's a fair deal on both sides, one for Jonathan Taylor and one also for the cost that they can they can get out. I would definitely assume, as a person that always studies the cap, that they can get out of this deal in either one to two years if it's not going in the direction where they're not stuck in this whole three-year deal. And, oh, by the way, they can still draft another running back to replace him as well. So I think this works, and I think this is how we'll see deals go in the future. You won't see the four, five, and six deals that we may have seen. I think you're going to be looking at three-year deals with a two-year out for teams, but a little bit more upfront for the player, and I think that may be fair all around. So much to dive into. Let's get right to it. I want to start, Alex, with the Twitter poll question of the week at PGF Podcast on Twitter. What outcome was more shocking? Saints 34, Patriots 0, or 49ers 42, Cowboys 10? This one has got a lot of traction on Twitter, guys. The vote is almost split exactly down the middle. Last I checked, it was just slightly in favor of the Saints being more shocking, blowing out the Patriots. 
51% of the vote, 49% of the vote going to the 49ers, blowing out the Cowboys. Alex, I'll start with you here. What outcome was more shocking to you? I have to say, Brad, and I will be making a concession (laughs) during the pod at some point, but the Saints going to Foxborough and blowing out the Patriots, that was something that I did not see at all. That was the most surprising thing. I mean, San Francisco is the one team that uh, that is running on all cylinders, so that's not surprising. It was it, There was a likelihood of it happening. However, but going to Foxborough and a Bill Belichick coach team and something that he does well in defense and getting blown about 34 is, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, Alex, I think the Twitter poll question is split almost right down the middle for a reason because both outcomes were absolutely shocking. I think the Patriots' loss was more shocking as well, Alex. And I'm with you because getting blown out and shut out at home versus what I would consider an average at best Saints team is alarming if you're a Patriots fan. The Pats have been outscored now 72-3 to combined in the last two weeks. We've never seen anything like this under Belichick in this New England squad. Quite frankly, this team is garbage. They're one and four. They're clearly moving in the wrong direction. Hopefully, Patriots fans enjoyed the glory days, Alex, because they're not coming back for a while. It is over in New England. In this game Sunday, the Patriots trailed 24 to zero at one point. They had a fourth and three at the Saints' 40 yard line, and they punted. That's called giving up. I was completely shocked by this, and it felt like a turning point for this entire season. This team feels like it's waving the white flag right now. Mac Jones sucks. Let's just face it. This guy is not who he thought he was going to be. And this roster is terrible. Bill Belichick, the GM, is letting down Bill Belichick, the head coach. And Alex, I think it's officially over for Belichick. I think we're watching his final season. And look, not everyone gets a fairy tale ending or a storybook ending. Not everyone gets to be John Elway. I mean, look, Johnny Unitas finished as a Charger. Franco Harris played his last game as a Seahawk. So not everybody gets to ride off into the sunset like Elway did. Now, will he be the coach next year? I don't think so. Will he be a coach somewhere else? Maybe. But I bet it's not in New England. Wow. You know, I've been hearing the Bill Belichick, this being his last season narrative. My only thing is, in what way do you think that Kraft is going to fire him? Or do you think he's going to step down? That's been my real thing because I look at Bill Belichick in a way of, I don't think he's going to get fired. It would be him having to step down and move on than the other way around. That's been my only thing. I can see it, but that means he doesn't want to coach anymore from my perspective. From what you read about Belichick and his personality type, it kind of feels like this is a guy who's pretty set in his ways and pretty set in the way he does things. And let's face it, he's built up the greatest coaching resume of all time. So it's going to be really hard to ask him to step down and do it in a respectful manner. I could see Kraft going to Bill and saying, look, we want to move on. We're going to draft a quarterback. I mean, they're going to have a top 10 pick. I mean, let's face it. They're going to be in the mix for a top 10 pick, maybe a top five pick. This this team is really going nowhere fast with this quarterback class and from what we've seen from Mac Jones 
there's a chance that the Kraft family says, look, it's time to start over with a new quarterback and a new coach, and it's not Belichick. And if they ask him to step down, there's a chance that he's going to come back and say, look, you're going to have to fire me. He might just force the issue with Kraft. It could get messy. I, I don't know if this is going to be a graceful exit for Bill Belichick. And if that's the case, maybe he gets a chip on his shoulder and he goes and takes a head coaching job somewhere else just throwing a team out there. Maybe he takes over LA and goes and coaches Justin Herbert when they get rid of Staley at the end of the year. I have no idea. It's going to be really fascinating, but I just get the feeling more and more that this is it in New England. It's an interesting conundrum that the Patriots face because how do you fire the quote-unquote greatest coach of all time if you subscribe to that? Also, if we do do it, where are we going next? Because if we move on, and it just, we continue to fail, I'm going to be looked at a certain way. But if I also get, if he also leaves and a la Brady, and to your point, goes to the Chargers and succeeds, it's going to make me look bad too. So it's interesting. It'll be something that'll be interesting to watch as it unfolds over the season. Then when we get to the off season, because there could be a lot of decisions that can be made because for me in conversations that we've had, I've more said he knows what he's doing on defense with drafting and everything, even to the of the offensive line and drafting. There needs to be someone in between that can do the offensive side of it, almost like your offensive coordinator, your offensive drafter, <laughs> lack of a better word, so that you can get some real talent on this team because you've been void of it your entire coaching career in New England. You have not done very well if we want to give him Gronk and we want to give him Edelman, but outside of that at the skill positions, what has he given us? What has he given the Patriots in terms of weapons at the skill position, at the skill position? If I was craft, I would consider maybe coming to Belichick and saying, look, if you're going to remain the head coach, then we're hiring a GM because like I mentioned a minute ago, Bill Belichick, the GM has been failing Bill Belichick, the coach. We know this guy can coach, but this roster is terrible, and that's because of Belichick. He's clearly missed on way, way too many draft picks, especially on the offensive side of the ball, like you mentioned, Alex, and it's not getting any better anytime soon. So if I'm Kraft, maybe you come to him and say, let's meet in the middle here. Let's get a GM. Let's get some offensive-minded people in here in the building and see if we can turn it around with a draft class or two, maybe a free agent signing, and try to get things going, start over with a new quarterback. But Belichick's got to let that part of, of his responsibilities go and just get back to coaching because we know he can coach. Everybody knows that. But this team just can't win with this lack of talent. Now, I want to jump to the other blowout that was part of that Twitter poll question, the 49ers absolutely destroying the Cowboys. I think this was surprising, but I don't think it was nearly as shocking. The 49ers have consistently beat the Cowboys the last few years. They have a better roster on both sides of the ball, a better coach, and yes, a better quarterback. I said it last season, the Cowboys are never winning a Super Bowl with Dak Prescott. He's just not good enough. Look, he's an average quarterback at best. That's what he's always been. And he's overachieved, quite frankly, from where he was drafted. He was a middle-round pick who became a solid starter for a long time in this league. But you're not winning anything substantial with Dak Prescott. It's the same story every year. They beat up on bad teams. They lose to good teams. I don't see it changing anytime soon. And look, Brock Purdy is just a way better quarterback. 
already at this point in his career, it's obvious. And look, because the 49ers are so talented across the board, Brock Purdy is still not getting enough credit here. He keeps getting better week in and week out. It showed again on Sunday. Now, does he have a great team and a great coach? Yes. But we have to look at it this way. If Brock Purdy was drafted in the first round, we'd all be saying that this guy is one of the best young franchise quarterbacks in the NFL. But instead, because he was a seventh-round draft pick, we tend to question it. We tend to make excuses like, well, but his team's good. and Yeah, but he's still making big-time throws week in and week out. There is no doubt right now that this is the best version of Kyle Shanahan's Niners, and it has a lot to do with Brock Purdy. He is really, quite frankly, the most underrated player in the NFL right now. He is poised under pressure. He has great pocket awareness. He has mobility to escape the rush. He's really, really accurate. He takes care of the football. We tend to cling where guys are drafted. And that's why so many first rounders who aren't any good stick around for years after we all know they can't play. And they usually get multiple chances to start for other teams. Look at the history of this league. Tony Romo was undrafted. Kurt Warner was undrafted. Tom Brady was a six-round pick. I mean, once you get to the league, can you play or not? Who cares where you get drafted? Absolutely. And and uh, this would have been the 2020 season, I believe, that's when Dak got injured in game one. I made a plea to Cowboy fans and to Cowboy Nation, tank the season. You have an opportunity here. There's some guy named Trevor Lawrence that is coming out. You are going into a se- an offseason where you don't know if you want to re-sign Dak. He's got this injury. You have the opportunity and the excuse to actually tank and go for the number one pick and have Trevor Lawrence on this rookie contract and be able to do some things. Instead, they move you know, heaven and high water to get some players in to trade for a quarterback here or there and bring a quarterback in to try and only win six games where had you maybe only won three or whatever it would have been at that time with, I believe it was Baducci or whoever the other quarterback was. I think there were two. You would have been in the running for Trevor Lawrence. And can you imagine Trevor Lawrence on this team? If you're saying Dak is not a guy and he's overachieved, decent quarterback, I believe they've gotten they've gotten the max out of him. He's as good as he's ever going to be. So we know what Dak is in this league. And you had a chance, instead of giving him that big, huge contract, you were still stuck in the Zeke contract. You could have gotten Trevor Lawrence and this team. We would be, I believe, in 2023, three years later, we would be having a different conversation about the Dallas Cowboys at the same position that we're talking about them right now. Now, on the flip side of that, you talked about Brock Purdy. And I can't talk about Brock Purdy without talking about Kyle Shanahan and the things that Kyle Shanahan exploited in that that quote-unquote vaunted Dallas defense. Everybody was talking about the Dallas defense. Dan Quinn, you know, he was looked at as one of the better defensive coordinators in this league. But I don't know what he was looking at because, again, as a person that was watching it in real time without even looking at the All-22, they were destroying you in the middle of the field. They exploited the middle of the field. So whether that's your linebackers or your safeties, between that 10 to 12-yard area, you had no defense there at all. You were just simply getting exploited all game long in the middle of the field. We already know you had some issues running the ball, so we don't need to talk about it that much. But in the middle of the field, I don't know what was going on. 
The other thing I thought about, and I actually mentioned this before the game, when people talk about Micah Parsons, the right side of that San Francisco offensive line is weak. I said you should be having Micah Parsons rushing from that right side at all times because what it's going to force them to do is keep George Kittle in either as a blocker or he's going to have to chip, which will eliminate him being a factor in the game. They did a few times. I watched George Kittle only have about maybe four or five yard, maybe seven yard routes. And then they kept putting him on the right side, excuse me, on the left side against Trent Williams, where we know that's a black hole for the most part. And they were also trying to move him inside as well at defensive tackle to try and free him up in some way, shape or form. So I think that this was a mismanagement on the defensive side. And then on the offensive side, I think there was a lot of things that I don't think fit what Dak does well. There was a lot of talk about Kellen Moore and how he might have, he was the issue. But what we're seeing is this may be a Dak issue to your point, because through the years with Kellen Moore, this has been a high flying offense, no matter what. And this year it's really not, it's kind of been grounded a little bit. They struggled to get CD lamb open. I even watched them move him to the slot. They still had issues getting him open. They can't go down the field. They don't have any big plays. We saw the two big plays they tried got either knocked down or intercepted. So I'm not sure what is going on with the offense, but there is definitely a disconnect from what they were doing successful through the Kellen Moore era and now transitioning into the McCarthy era. There's a disconnect offensively, and there's also an issue on that defense outside of Trayvon Diggs because what I saw yesterday had nothing to do with Trayvon Diggs. He's covering the outside. What I saw was the the middle of the field just simply being exploited time and time again, and there were no adjustments made. Alex, you're absolutely right about Mark Micah Parsons. He was basically erased from this ball game, and I saw they tried to move him around a little bit, but I also saw him go against Trent Williams a few different times with absolutely zero success. I mean, one of the best left tackles in the game. Micah Parsons had no answers for him at all. He was a complete non-factor in this game. I mean, completely irrelevant. And to your point, I think they could have utilized him better, but the Niners just had all the answers. It's like they had all the answers to the test in this one. They knew exactly what Dallas wanted to do, and they exploited them on offense and defense. Now, I did see this stat, Alex, and I thought this was fascinating because the Cowboys have now gone from first to 30th in the NFL and pass defense since Trayvon Diggs got hurt. I, I brought up Diggs getting hurt as being a maybe a bigger impact than people realized because we talked about it when we were doing our cornerback rankings this offseason, just how elite of a player this guy really is, and it has really hurt them in that secondary. New York Jets offense coordinator Nathaniel Hackett enjoyed some sweet revenge, Alex, as his offense racked up 407 total yards on the Broncos. If you guys recall, Hackett was called out in training camp by Broncos coach Sean Payton, who told USA Today that the 2022 Broncos were, quote, one of the worst coaching jobs in the history of the NFL. Now, look, Hackett was bad last year. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But you can't take shots like that in the media to other NFL coaches for no reason. And newsflash Sean Payton, you're not exactly tearing it up in Denver either. This Broncos team is complete garbage. They're terrible. And they've got one of the highest paid quarterback head coach combos in the entire league. Quite frankly, it's embarrassing the product they put on the field. They're headed to have a top five pick right now, Alex. 
And the question is going to become, do they draft a quarterback? Because Wilson has been better this year than he was last year, but he's not good enough anymore to lead a team to a Super Bowl. Russell Wilson, I don't think Russell Wilson was ever good enough to carry a team to the Super Bowl. And that does not mean he wasn't a good quarterback. You always hear me talk about, shout out to the Moving the Sticks pod, you know, trucks and trailers. There's very few trucks in this league that we've seen, let's just talk about in the last 20 to 25 years. We're probably going to say Peyton, Brady, you know, maybe if you want to throw Rodgers in there and Andrew Luck to a certain extent, blah, 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 blah. But I don't think he was ever that good. I think Pete Carroll was just a really good coach and understood what his quarterback was and coached to the strengths of the quarterback. Balance with the run and with the defense that allowed Russ to do and be successful in terms of what he was doing. So it may have given the appearance that he could carry a team, but it was really a lot what was going on and how that team was being coached and the offensive plays being called. I think he's in the upper echelon. He's always, for the most part, he's always been a top, you know, six, eight, wherever you want to put him in the top five quarterback. But I don't know if he was ever ascended to that next level of being a full on truck. That's the first thing. And he is playing better this year. But at 35, he's not the playmaker that he was perhaps when he was like maybe 30, 31. Now, Sean Payton, to take a look because I've been hearing a lot of the rhetoric about this game. Everything is simply talking about Russ, which I cannot understand when this was called out by this podcast and saying we need to pay attention and see what Sean Payton is because Sean Payton in New Orleans threw the ball 600 to 700 times a year and rarely ran the ball. And when he did, when he had a balanced attack and a defense, that's when he won the Super Bowl. Other than that, he was 7-9, and 8-8, nine, eight and, eight, and then another year they came up and made the um, a- NFC Championship game with a good defense. So that, to me, wasn't a recipe, and that's what I was looking at when coming into this season to see what they were going to do. The other part is when, and I'm going to use Tony Dungy as a reference point, when Tony Dungy was let go from, was let go from the Buccaneers, he came to the Colts. When he, as an evaluator, looked at the coaching staff, he said, you know what? I don't need to touch this. I don't need to touch that offense. That offense is moving fine. So, Tom Moore, you guys stay in place. All I need to do is worry about and fix the defense, and that's what he did. This is the same situation. Sean Payton, you are an offensive guy. Denver brought you in to fix the offense. There was no need for you to touch the defense at all. This was already a top 10 defense. We know the narrative. Had they scored 20 points in the first 10 games last year, they would have been 9-1. But since Vic Fangio had taken over this defense and rebuilt it, it had been a top 10 defense for about five years straight since he rebuilt it and set it up for success. And what is the difference in last year's Denver team to this year's Denver team? It's the defense. The defense went from being ninth or eighth last year. They're dead last. They're last. Giving up 450.6 yards a game. They're dead last. I know there's an outlier game when we want to talk about the 70-point explosion from Miami. However, if we remove that game, 388, 471, and 407 by the Jets. That still puts you in the bottom five. So the only difference here, the common denominator here is Sean Payton. Now, on the other side, kudos to the Jets. You guys stood up for your coach. And 
let's be let's be honest. And Brad, we may not have been on we may not have been doing a pod last year, but we certainly talked about Hackett simply not knowing what he's doing. There is some blame to put on Russ, but he just was not ready to lead that team. He was not fit to be the head coach of that team. So that's fine. But kudos to those Jets for standing up for their coach, winning that game. They're still looking like they're going to be in it. There, Zach Wilson actually appears to be getting better, and if that if that run offense and Brees Hall is back on track, this team should stand to be able to make some moves and still be competitive and have something to say about the playoff race for the most part. With the way this season has started so far for the Denver Broncos, should they be sellers at the trade deadline? At this point and the way that they are set up, I believe that you would have to start to be sellers. Now, here's where you have to get in the room with your brain trust to understand what does selling mean. Sean Payton was just signed to a big deal, so you can't fire him. Russ's new contract does not kick in until next year. And if you do anything with him, because there's a lot of narrative going around that if Denver ends up with the number one pick, they have to take Caleb Williams. Well, you can take Caleb Williams, but then you're stuck with Russ because that's a $100 million cap hit. It's a $68 million dead cap hit for 2024 and then a negative 32 in savings for 2024, totaling $100 million. And the problem is, I don't think they're in a position to trade, unlike Arizona, to trade and take that type of cap hit. Unless you're simply talking about in terms of being a seller, you're going to have to sell everything. And that includes Patrick Sertain because he's coming up for a deal. And the way these cornerback deals are looking, you're not going to be in a position with everything that you did this past offseason, paying Mike McGlinchey and doing a couple other things. You're not going to be able to pay Patrick Sertain to retain him at the level that these cornerbacks are getting paid. Do we want to just really tank? And then you would simply really be putting Caleb Williams in a situation that Bryce Young is in because we don't think Bryce Young is a bad quarterback. It's just that they gave up everything to get him and the cupboard is bare. The cupboard, if the cupboard is bare in Carolina, this house is getting foreclosed on and they're taking the land, the car, everything from you if Denver decides to take the nuclear option and become true sellers. And furthermore, to the point that you're mentioning, this Bronco team, they just lost to the Jets. And I and I mentioned this a part ago, now I'll mention it again. Now they go to Kansas City. Let's just say that's a loss. Then they're home to Green Bay. Okay, let's call that a win. Then they're home to Kansas City. And then they come, they go on a bye, and then they come back to Buffalo. In those four games, this team can go one and three and be two and seven going into Thanksgiving when they have to pay, play Minnesota. So I don't know what you do if you're the Broncos here, to be honest with you. Yeah, it is a complete in total mess. No doubt about it. And it's an expensive one at that. Alex, I think there's a legitimate question here that we've got to start really asking ourselves. Are the Detroit Lions legit? Because they blew out a bad Panthers team. Look, on a side note, guys, I'll take the L on that one. Because sometimes you take swings and you miss. You know, you can't predict all chalk every year. I took a swing with the Panthers. I thought the defense... And with Bryce Young at quarterback and a new coach, I thought that this was a team that would be really competitive this year. Obviously, that is not the case. This team has been really bad. But this game with Detroit, the box score really doesn't do this Carolina beatdown justice because 14 of the Panthers' 24 points came in mostly garbage time after Detroit was up 35-10. to 10. I mean, they crushed this team. Jared Goff is having another great year. This offensive line is elite. Aiden Hutchinson has been a beast. 
And I guarantee the Jags are wishing they had a do-over on Trayvon Walker because he hasn't been even close to as good as Hutchinson so far in their careers. This team is living up to the offseason hype so far, Alex. Yeah, I can't say anything bad about Detroit. They look like they're pressing on all cylinders. I mean, the only real true knock that I have on them is drafting Jamar Gibbs. Again, what would Christian Gonzalez look like if he was on this team? Because Jamar Gibbs is simply not even being used. This is the David Montgomery show, and he's just a supporting cast member at this point. But to the flip side of that, Carolina, in terms of what we've seen, it looks like Bryce Young is getting a little bit better being able to get the ball out. We've seen Adam Thielen pop with a few good games here in a row. So it looks like he's learning to work through some of the in the deficiency on the offensive line. But this running game, I mean, Miles Sanders, I don't know what's going on with Miles Sanders. Maybe the Philly fans were right when they said he wasn't seeing the holes very well compared to what we saw at Penn State. He's not seeing everything as well as we thought because he was out carried by Chuba Hubbard. So I think we're looking at a changing of the guard there. And maybe that's a bad sign signing by the Panthers. This defense, which is a good defense, but they just simply spend too much time on the field to be as effective as they they had been in previous years to the point why you thought they had a shot at perhaps stealing this division. So two teams heading in polar opposites. Kudos to the Lions. Panthers, one day. You'll get a win one day. Uh, See, I'm glad you brought this up because I'm wondering, is it time to panic on Bryce Young? Now, I know it's early, and maybe it's way too early to panic, but Like you mentioned, they traded a lot to get this guy, and he's been absolutely terrible. He just doesn't look confident. When you watch the tape, he he doesn't look confident. His turnovers are killing this team. And you're right. On a side note here, running back Miles Sanders got a four-year, $25.4 million deal to be Carolina's lead back and to take pressure off of Bryce Young, and he's been terrible too. So that signing has really not helped things. Now, we liked Bryce Young coming out. I think he's a good prospect. I still think he has plenty of time to become a high-level quarterback. Zencaster is the ultimate web-based podcasting solution. It provides high-quality audio and video podcast production and hosting. With a full suite of professional tools, podcasters can seamlessly record, produce, and publish studio-quality content all from one dashboard. Zencaster's post-production process takes the headache out of audio production. Set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. Coordinating all your guests to record in person is painful and tedious. Easily invite up to 11 participants per recording with one click. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code PGFP, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Hey there, PGF Nation. You know what's important when you're having a good time? Staying hydrated. And that's where Liquid IV comes in, the category-winning hydration brand that's fueling your well-being. With just one stick of Liquid IV, you get two times faster hydration than water alone, plus 
five essential vitamins to keep you feeling your best. And let's not forget about the convenience factor. The packaging is perfect for on the go, whether you're tailgating or just hanging out on the couch. But what really sets Liquid IV apart is the amazing flavors. Personally, I'm all about the Concord Grape and Lemon Lime. And with three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks, Liquid IV is made with premium ingredients to give you the hydration and nourishment you need. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code PGFP at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code PGFP at liquidiv.com. So next time you're cracking open a cold one and settling in for the big game, make sure you've got Liquid IV by your side. Trust me, your body will thank you. Hey, Brad, you know, I want to give another shout out to Ohio State and their quarterbacks because they had another good week, although Houston may have faltered. But Justin Fields with another good another good week, progressing a little bit more. And I mean, DJ Moore, eight catches, 230 yards and three touchdowns on 10 targets. I mean, he was a monster Again, a back-to-back good weeks by Justin Fields. These are the things that you're looking to build on. So shout out to them. Shout out to Justin Fields doing what he needs to do. And you know what? I even want to say something about Sam Howell. I mean, he threw the ball 51. They threw, they ran 10 times for 29 yards. And Sam Howell had to throw the ball 51 times for 388 yards. And he was successful he was 37 for 51, 388 yards, two TDs, one interception. Again, probably defense might have been a little bit soft coverage. But for a young QB, this is something for him to grow on because he maybe is looking like maybe they have something there in Sam Howell. But because maybe Justin Fields is right when he said what he said, you know, in the media that he feels like he's being overloaded with information. Maybe they simplified a lot of things that Justin Fields, I mean, the completion percentage rate is very low. However, he's still doing his job and not, this is four TDs and no interceptions. So, but he, so he's doing his job to the best of his ability. And then he's building on something. They're building confidence. So let's see and be able to continue to watch Justin Fields. Yeah. One thing that I noticed that I've really liked in the last two weeks, and we've seen the improvement from Fields in this offense has been the play calling. You notice now in these last couple of weeks, they're starting to lean more into Justin Fields strengths which is that his athleticism, his ability to get out of the pocket, to be able to throw on the run. He's good in those RPO situations, which, look, the first few weeks of the season, they basically ran no RPOs. And that's something that he is can really be good at because of his threat to be able to run the ball and to open up things downfield for him. I like the shift that they've made and said, look, let's stop trying to force him to be a pocket passer and let's lean into what he's good at, which is being an athletic quarterback who moves around well and can take shots when they're there. I like the shift I've seen from the Bears, and clearly they've played a lot better the last couple of weeks. I want to jump to the Houston Texans here briefly here, Alex, because they nearly got to 3-1 and one on Sunday, but the Falcons and Desmond Ritter who I got to give hats off to. He played a really nice game, managed to sneak out another home win as a small favorite. They beat Houston 21-19 on a last-second field goal. This was kind of an under-the-radar game that was actually a, a pretty good watch. Now, 
there's no moral victories. I get that. But the Texans have to feel good about where they are right now. And I continue to be impressed with this young quarterback and this young head coach, D'Amico Ryans. Absolutely. CJ Stroud. I mean, you know, they kind of put, they were, I guess people are starting to understand who Nico Collins is. So they've kind of put the, a little bit of the clamps down on what he's been able to do the last two weeks. So they were able to slow them down a lot, but he was still 20 for 35, 249 in a touchdown. Again, no interceptions. I believe, I believe there's a record that he's either approaching or that he just got for a rookie quarterback starting out five games with no interceptions. But then on the other side, to your point, Desmond Ritter, there's a Desmond Ritter. Not only was there a Desmond Ritter sighting, there were also a sighting for Kyle Pitts and Drake London, two things that we have been talking about. Specifically today, there was a trade made between the Rams and Atlanta to bring in Van Jefferson. And we're looking like, well, you don't get the ball of Kyle Pitts and Drake London, but you're now trading for another receiver for him not to throw to. However, it looks like Desmond Ritter had a at least for him, a breakout game, 28 for 37, 329, and a touchdown. Even Drake London had a had a uh, attempt for 22 yards. But Kyle Pitts, seven catches, 87 yards. I can imagine that there are a lot of fantasy owners of Kyle Pitts who had a lot of high hopes that are relieved that they're finally getting some results from drafting that player probably around the fifth or sixth round. The running backs had more of a – they were 36 for 96, 2.7 yards, but – being that this team was based upon the run and they were only running at 2.7 yards a clip, they were still able to pull this game out with 37 attempts from Desmond Ritter, which none of us, if we said Desmond Ritter is going to have to throw the ball 37 times, will we put any of our money on Atlanta to win that game? But salute to Desmond Ritter. Maybe this is, again, as I said with Justin Fields, this is something for him to build on. And perhaps Kyle Pitts and Drake London, they're finally going to start to be consistent in getting getting targets and getting catches and producing on the field. Kansas City Chiefs get by the Vikings. I like what I'm seeing from rookie wide receiver Rasheed Rice. Rice got two passes on the opening drive of that third quarter, one for a touchdown. One thing became really obvious to me, Alex, and that's Travis Kelsey's value to this Chiefs team. Look, we know this guy is a great player, the best receiving tight end in the game, a, a big-time playmaker, but – when he's out, they just are not the same offense, and it has become abundantly clear to me this season. Now, I want to shift to the Vikings here quickly, though, because the Vikings are garbage. Look, this team is really bad. Now, I know they hung around in this game, but they're not getting wins for a reason. They fall to 1-4. and four. We talked about how they were quietly rebuilding in the summer. And by getting rid of a lot of key veteran players this offseason, this is one of the reasons I was so down on them coming into the year. And it's starting to really show. It's time to get rid of Kirk Cousins and really start this rebuild. Look, since 1990, 161 teams have started one and four. Of those teams, 150 missed the playoffs. That's only 7% that went on to make the playoffs. It's over, Vikings. I'm sorry. It's over. This season is a wrap. It's a deep quarterback class. Put yourself in a spot to get one in April. Not only put yourself in the spot to get a quarterback, put yourself in a spot to get a running game. Because although this defense has a lot to be desired, this team was still explosive last year offensively, which we expected more of this year. But we're noticing without a running game, this team is faltering on offense. You have Jordan, Jordan Addison, TJ Hawkinson, KJ Osborne, and Justin Jefferson. 
this team is not as explosive that a lot of people thought they would see. And oh, by the way, Justin Jefferson hurt his hamstring, though I believe it's a grade one or grade two. It's not a, it's not a high grade, but we know as a wide receiver and a wide receiver of his caliber, hamstrings tend to linger throughout the season as well. So to your point, Brad, with that happening with Justin Jefferson, you're going to want to take care of this kid. He's in a con- he's in a year where you're going to redo his contract. He's probably going to be he- well. I don't want to say probably. He is going to get the contract that's going to set the market for wide receivers. Find a taker for Kirk Cousins, and maybe that's a conversation we can have either today or at another point in time. Is who would be the taker for Kirk Cousins in this situation that would be worth trading for that they feel they can make a run at something, and then also. Maybe you need to start looking at some of the things you need to trade off as well. I don't know, Daniel Hunter maybe, and because you're going to need to rebuild that defense anyway, but you're going to need to take some calls and at least some knocks at the door to see what the value is on Kirk Cousins, see what the value is on Daniel Hunter and whatever else on your team that other teams may be searching for to add to their teams that they try to make strides towards the playoffs. Cincinnati Bengals get a big win. Joe Burrow showed the mobility that he lacked through the first four games, and that mobility seems to be back now. He was able to move around and make big throws downfield, something he struggled with early in the year. I mean, he just did not look like the Joe Burrow that we know, and he started to look like that guy last week. So, Alex, is Joe Burrow back? And if so, are they still potential contenders in the AFC? Yeah, absolutely. As long as you have Joe Burrow, you have that explosive offense. That defense is still a very good defense, despite what they may have lost in the defensive backfield. But that front seven is still a strong front seven. Joe Burrow, they are doing some things. I saw that they ran the ball. Well, I'll say ran the ball with at least the running backs 25 times, but he still threw the ball 46 times. I still think they need to get more balance. And you know, one of the things that I noticed, and I didn't think it would be a big thing, but you know, I think this team does miss Samaji Pirine because they don't technically have another back that they can maybe load up on the run to ease a lot of the pressure that Joe Burrow's facing. Had they continued losing, this would be a team that we would have to start talking about what are you going to do with T. Higgins and should they be trading T. Higgins? But since they're still in the race, there's, they're only two and three. They still haven't. They still have an opportunity. We can't sell on them yet because, as I've said before, we've seen this team come back from similar situations before. So they're still in the running to win the division. Still in the running to make the playoffs. There now, Joe Burrow, thirty-six for forty-six, three seventeen, three TDs, one interception. Mister I'm always open. Jamar Chase, fifteen catches, one hundred ninety-two yards, and three touchdowns. So we know that that connection is still there. But we need to see consistency from the Bengals. We need to see them put together back-to-back good games, and I believe that they need to run the ball more. On the flip side, as I said before, the Cardinals were playing hard, but as you start to get in the weeks five through eight, when you consistently lose, you're going to start to lose the locker room. That's just not a product of bad coaching. That's just simply a product of losing And it seems that it may be starting to tilt in that way. Joshua Dobbs, you know, he's coming back down the earth a lot of the high play. They haven't been able to run the ball as effectively as they did before. Um, I hear the no call of duties coming out. So you're going to lose Marquise Brown sooner or later. (laughs) But you got you guys started out strong. Let's just see what you do. Wait, Marquise Brown, he plays Call of Duty too? Yeah, that's that's uh, Kyler Murray's best friend. They play Call of Duty a lot together. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So they they you know with that coming that's just a tongue in cheek joke don't nobody go crazy but so we just have to see what's going on there but the Bengals need to put together a couple of back to back a couple of good back to back I would say actually back to back to back weeks and if we take a look at their schedule they have the Seahawks coming up at home that is a tough game but then they go on a bye week and I think the bye week for them is coming at the right time. Alex, Jalen Hurts is starting to look more comfortable with this Brian Johnson offense, him leading the charge here as the offensive coordinator. It, it's looking like it's starting to click more here. Nearly 400 yards of offense and set a season high in rushing yards last Sunday. This team has something, quite frankly, that most NFL teams try to create and just can't, and that's an identity. They know who they are. And they know what they are, what they're good at, and they don't stray away from it. They beat teams up in the trenches, and they do it on both sides of the ball. And that's really the secret sauce for this team. Now, I'm still impressed with the Rams. Even in this loss, they hung around in this in this game, and nobody thought this team was going to be any good. Nobody thought they were going to be competitive. But they've really become a tough out every week. But I've got to give credit to the Eagles. I don't even think we've seen their best football yet. And that's kind of scary for the rest of the NFC because here they are at 5-0. and Absolutely. To your point, uh, which is why I was saying the Eagles look like at some point they could possibly get picked off because they aren't playing their best football yet. But that, but you know that, but nonetheless, they are still winning all of their games. And one thing that I truly want to point out that I loved about watching this game Although I think Devin uh, Devontae Smith not having any stats in this game really hurt my fantasy team, but they involved Dallas Goddard, who I think is a forgotten person in this offense and can really be a huge weapon down the stretch when teams decide to try and take away A.J. Brown. You really need to keep Dallas Goddard involved in this offense consistently. Because if we look at him, he was he had he had nothing against New England. He had six catches for twenty two yards. That's really nothing. Then five catches for forty one. Then two for twenty five. And then this explosion for eight for one seventeen. I think this is a weapon that hopefully they're now saying, oh, you know what? We need to if we're going to throw the ball, if the running game starts to falter, we need to involve Dallas Goddard a lot more. And then to your point. You know, those of those of you who drafted Cooper Cup, welcome back Cooper Cup with eight catches for 118 yards right out of the gate. Sean McVay is, this is me personally. As of right now, Sean McVay is my coach of the year. Because coming into this year, nobody had any high hopes for Los Angeles at all. This is Matthew Stafford coming back from an offseason where they were trying to trade him. This is no Cam Akers. This is Cooper Cup not going to be playing for the first four to five weeks. There's no way that anybody would have thought at this point in time that this team would have been two and three. I'm pretty sure the bets were all on them being 0-5 to start out the season or maybe 1-4 and at the most part. But instead, Sean McVay, to unlike Sean Payton, pivots with his running game, gets Puka Nuka, gets Tutu Atwell involved in the game. Nobody knew who Puka Nuka was, a.k.a. Pikachu for me, but nobody really knew who this guy was, and here he is now, a Rookie of the Year candidate. I want to give credit to the Pittsburgh Steelers for playing hard and getting a big win over Baltimore, but to me, Alex, it was clear who the better team was. Lamar Jackson, outside of one bad red zone pick, which 
you know, I will say it was was not a very good throw. But other than that pick, he was really good in this game, but his teammates let him down big time with what felt like 27 dropped passes, multiple drops that would have been touchdowns. The Ravens, quite frankly, should have blown out Pittsburgh. And on a side note here for Pittsburgh, TJ Watt has to be the leader again for Defensive Player of the Year. He has become almost unblockable. Yeah, we can start right there with TJ Watt. I mean, this guy is a monster. I know we're only five games into the season, but here they are. Here TJ Watt is, even um, Alex Highsmith as well, contributing that defense is just playing at a very, very high level. And, you know, for all the bad takes that I – not I don't want to say bad takes, but for the bad take that I had on the Patriots, winning which I am conceding that they're no longer going to win that division, this is one that I feel comfortable about when I said I have Pittsburgh – making the playoffs because of what this defense is doing. And we did also have finally, again, for those the people that drafted George Pickens, we had a breakout a breakout game from him with six for one thirty and a touchdown as well. And one of those touchdowns burning the best cornerback on that Ravens defense and Marlon Humphreys. And I know he's coming back from injury, but he really just blew right by him without hesitation at all. And there's one thing I want to give you credit for, Brad. You mentioned it, and I've been talking about it. I, I kind of struggle with it a little bit. You're right. Jalen Warren needs to be the starting running back on this team. He's just a little bit more explosive. He adds another dynamic to the team with his speed and his shiftiness that they probably need coming out of the game. And maybe Najee Harris as the closer, if they can get into situations like that. On the other side, yeah, Zay Flowers had a Even though he had five catches for 73, there were about maybe two drops and one bad pass. And then there was one pass that he just, he got, I think the turf monster got him or the grass monster got him and he fell down. And Rashad Bateman, I mean, you were a first round pick. There were some high hopes for you coming in, being next to Zay Flowers, Mark Andrews and Odell Beckham Jr. But that was a flat out drop pass and this is a tie game if we're just looking at the way that everything happened this is a tie game at 17 17 if you make that catch and agreed that pass to Odell Beckham when I looked back at it, I looked at it a few times it looked like it should have been a back shoulder it should have been a back shoulder throw to the outside instead it looked like a fade route so maybe there was some miscommunication there but for the most part but I see a change in Lamar he is taking the shots that I have been criticizing him for that's at minimum what I wanted to see from him. So I do see him progressing forward, but the Steelers are going to have something to say about the AFC North. Alex, let's wrap up NFL week five with the game ball. We do it every week. Alex, who's going to get your game ball this week? My game ball goes to Jamar Chase. Very rarely do we get a guy that talks and then backs it up. He said what he said last week that he's always open. And then this week he showed why he said that he's always open. So kudos to him and game ball to him for talking that talk and then getting on the field and walking that walk. My game ball, Alex, is going to go to Jets running back Brees Hall. 22 carries for 177 yards, 17 yards receiving, and a touchdown. He broke off a 72-yard run in this game, helped the Jets get some revenge over Sean Payton and the Broncos like we talked about earlier. Look, he's one of the best young running backs in the NFL, and if they can run the ball with this defense, I think the Jets could stay competitive in the AFC. It feels like every week, We've been beating up on coaches or players or somebody for screwing up. I I just thought, you know what? Let's make it a segment. Let's call this the WTF of the week. Oh, fuck.
why don't you kick this off, Alex? Who gets the WTF moment of the week for you? Without a doubt, uh, I mean, Mario Cristobal. I mean, the look on the face of that Miami bench of disbelief and despair. <laughs> and, so, and there was nothing to be consoled about what we saw against Georgia Tech. And all you had to do was kneel and that game is over. Instead, you run and the unthinkable happens. I'm pretty sure it's a very low percentage that that ever happens, but it happened. And then on the back end, to give up the touchdown, even though you turn the ball over to give up the touchdown, there were four people around that receiver. So there was a breakdown in communication somewhere along the line that that guy was that open, got behind the defense and was able to score that touchdown. And that is a devastating loss for Miami. It's the type of loss because these losses come at a, excuse me, these victories come at a premium in terms of rankings. That is the type of loss that can really crush a team and perhaps tank your season. But Mario Cristobal, we thought you were, I believe you're a better coach than that. I don't want to say we thought we were. I believe you're a better coach than that, but those kids deserve better. I don't know what was going on. Oh my gosh, Alex, you are not kidding. That was ridiculous. With Georgia Tech out of timeouts and a minute 18 remaining, Miami holding a 20-17 to 17 lead, he makes that decision to run rather than take the knee and just and, and just kill the clock. It's inexcusable. It's completely inexcusable, especially because, Alex, Mario Cristobal had almost the exact same thing happen to him in 2018 when he was the head coach at Oregon playing against Stanford he decided to run the ball instead of kneeling, and they fumbled, and Oregon lost that game as well. So you want to talk about not learning from your mistakes. Just a few years later, here he is at Miami making the exact same mistake and costing his team a huge win. Just inexcusable, no doubt about it, a WTF moment. My WTF moment of the week is going to go to Wink Martindale, the Giants defensive coordinator. Now, look, coming up with a game plan for that Dolphins off that Dolphins offense is pretty much an impossible task. With the way that that team is playing with all the playmakers, and let's face it, the Giants do not have the personnel to match up with these guys. I get it. But how about not putting a rookie six-round pick in press man coverage over Tyreek Hill? How about we start there? Because not only do they put him in press man, but the safety on his side is playing up towards the box. So you've got no help over the top. Tyreek Hill easily blows past him for a pitch and catch wide open touchdown. And at that point in the game, I got to give credit to the Giants. They were hanging around in that game. And it was still a fairly competitive game. That touchdown really kind of broke open the floodgates and Miami was able to pull away. But you cannot put a player in that kind of position. Alex, college football week six was absolutely awesome. Man, we saw some great games. The Red River rivalry was an instant classic massive win for Oklahoma and Brent Venables. Now, last year, Texas embarrassed OU 49-0. to Oklahoma got some payback this year. They have a great chance now to win the rest of their games. But here's the thing. So does Texas. So there's a very good chance that they're going to play again in the Big 12 championship. And this time with a trip to the college football playoff, potentially on the line. Well, I think we were, we, I, th I think we probably broke both of our phones texting back and forth about everything that was happening in real time and what 
was going on, but this was a game that we were both paying attention to, that we were both watching. I actually had Oklahoma beating Texas in this game. I didn't feel comfortable that Texas was as dominant as a lot of their fans felt that they were in that number three position. It's I think there's going to be a lot of fluctuating that happens between two and ten in the next upcoming weeks. I don't I can talk about Georgia Lake, but I think there's going to be a lot that happens between two and ten in the next couple of weeks. But shout out to Oklahoma. They did what I thought they were going to be able to do. They were going to be able to score on Texas. And I thought they were also going to be able to run on Texas as well. So shout out to Dylan Gabriel and Jaleel Farouk in terms of what they did and what they were able to do to Texas and win that game. Yeah, that was the game of the week. Big time hype around that game. It lived up to it. Huge, huge win for that program. Now you mentioned Georgia. Georgia finally looked like the Bulldogs. Now, maybe it took an undefeated ranked Kentucky team to kind of wake this team up, but they were dominant. Carson Beck had his best game by far. He was really sharp. He looked like way more of a playmaker than a game manager in this one. Now, the offense put up over 600 yards on Kentucky. When I look ahead here, Alex, only ranked teams left on the schedule are Ole Miss and Tennessee I think they're going to be big favorites in those games. Watch out, guys. It looks like Georgia is going to be right back in the college football playoff mix. Yeah, and the only thing where you can possibly see an upset outside, I don't think I don't think they'll, Tennessee has the ability to beat them. But obviously, Ole Miss, watch out for Mizzou. There's some, I don't know what's going on with Mizzou, but there's something there. And, of course, Florida at any given time. They decide to do something that's perhaps, but I doubt it. But that Mizzou, there's something about Missouri. I don't know why I'm, I honestly can't tell you why I'm saying it, but there's something about that Missouri game that I don't know about for Georgia that we're going to have to watch and see because Mizzou's been playing a couple of tough games. But that Mizzou game against LSU, I mean, I know LSU's defense is basically in, <laughs> in, the, in the garbage, but I think Mizzou has a couple of things that they possibly can do that can disrupt UGA. I'm not saying they're going to win. It's just saying I just feel something. I'm just watching to see what we do, how they do going forward and see what they can do against Georgia. Yeah, it's a good point. I might have overlooked them because Missouri has been really competitive this year, and they've been one of the surprise teams in the SEC for sure. So would not surprise me because they have been hanging around in a lot of games. They've been really tough all year long. New week, same story, Alex, for USC. Caleb Williams and this offense are carrying this team, even though Williams played probably his worst game of the year so far, and the defense has taken another step back. I mean, they just look like they're getting worse by the week. They can't stop anyone. They had to score 43 points and win in overtime versus an average Arizona team. Now, big picture here, Lincoln Riley, just like at Oklahoma, is never going to have a real chance at a championship-level team until he hires a real defensive coordinator and gets that side of the ball figured out. I feel like I've been saying this every week here, but you can't just expect to win a shootout every single week. Absolutely. And that makes them ripe to be picked off at number nine USC. As I said, I think in the next upcoming weeks, we're going to see a lot of change in the top 10. You cannot, they play Notre Dame next. Now I'm not going to get into Notre Dame too much because I'm pretty sure we're going to mention them, but Notre Dame is hungry and they're going to Notre Dame. Then after Notre Dame, they have Utah. And then after Utah, they face California, then they face Washington and then Oregon. 
they're not going to go undefeated. I actually see two losses on their horizon coming because I think Notre Dame is going to bounce back next week. And then I think they're going to lose to anywhere between Utah, Washington, and Oregon. That's going to be two losses as well. So this team is going to end up in the late teens or early 20s by the end of the season. I don't think they're going to be in the playoff hunt at all once the season is over. I see two losses on their horizon. Yeah, I think I'm with you, Alex. I think Oregon could be trouble for them, especially because that game is at Autzen. We know what that home crowd is like. We know what that environment's going to be like. It's going to be a tough place to try to get a W. And we know how good Oregon's defense has looked. And Oregon has a pretty good offense as well. They're a much more balanced team than USC is right now. That's going to be a tough place to play. Washington, that's going to be a game where just look, I don't care what the number is, take the over. Because that's going to be a full-blown shootout. Maybe they can get by in that one just on offense alone because Washington's defense is pretty suspect as well. But Utah, I think Utah is a team that has the kind of defense that can really slow this team down, turn it into a fist fight, and you never know what happens in those kind of games. I think it's a great point, Alex. I don't see this team even winning the Pac-12 at this point. They're a really talented team, but they've got to get the defense figured out. There's no doubt about that. And Notre Dame. We got to talk about them briefly here because this is a really good team. And I think Marcus Freeman is a really good head coach. I, I like what he's doing with this program, but that is a disappointing loss to Louisville, especially the way they played in the second half. You just can't lose to teams with less talent. No disrespect to Louisville, but Notre Dame is a team. They, they should beat these guys. And quite frankly, they should roll a team like Louisville. This loss is devastating because now they're officially out of the college football playoff chase. We'll see if they're going to be able to regroup because you mentioned they've got USC next week. Maybe they can get up for that game, but it's going to be tough after a tough loss like that. So, yeah, that was a terrible loss. I mean, coming off what happened with Ohio State, going into Louisville, who was 25th ranked at the time, this is a team that you should have beat. You should have been able to bounce back from that loss that you had at Ohio State, and you should have been able to move forward and beating Louisville and imposing your power. Instead, you lost. Now you really need, this is a huge game. Again, you're no longer going to be in the college playoffs, but this is a game that you need to win. This is a big game, I think, for Marcus Freeman, because as we know in college football, when these losses start to pile up, the the, the birds start to circle, and then your name starts being put in. Should we keep him? Should we go? Should we keep him? Should we go? But you have an opportunity here to make a statement against an undefeated team, against a rivalry, and snuff out USC going into next week. Michigan has really been one of the most balanced teams in the entire country. They have dominated this season on offense and defense. I've been impressed with J.J. McCarthy, the quarterback. He's thrown for over 1,200 yards, 11 touchdowns, only three interceptions. The passing game has complemented the running game this year. And, and look, here's the way I'm looking at this, Alex. There is no dominant team in college football this year. I know Georgia's the defending champ, and they're playing well right now. They're undefeated. I get it. But I don't see a team that just looks unbeatable right now. And I know they haven't played anybody yet, but this feels like the year that Harbaugh can maybe break through and win the whole thing. Yeah, I think he really needs to because he's had teams. They've been, they've started, they finally, it looks like they've gotten over the Ohio State hump and consistently being able to beat them. But now they need to take the next step and get to that championship game. I mean, Blake Corum, he's not as explosive in doing the things that he was doing last year in terms of where he was, but he's still, as you said, a strong running game, very balanced. We know 
don't want to go to Michigan because that that crowd and what that stadium sounds like when it's rocking. But they have an opportunity. I mean, I'm looking at Jim Harbaugh to finally get over the hump. I think this team will be able to maintain and continue on into the playoffs and see where they're seated and see what they can do. Because right now they're at number two. But again, as I said before, I think there's always a spot where somebody can get taken out and and coming up November 11th, they get to face Penn State. And I know how high you are on Penn State, but that is a huge game for Michigan and and for Penn State, depending on where those teams are seated at that point in time, to try and get into the playoff hunt. Because we look at Penn State, Penn State has been consistent, Penn State has been surging, and they really want to get into the playoffs. So that November 11th, they do have in between Indiana, Michigan State, and Purdue, games that we believe they'll win. But that game, November 11th, anybody can circle it, mark it with a dot. Penn State, at Penn State, November 11th, will be must-see TV. And will I think that will determine which one of those teams will end up in the college playoffs. If you look at the game on Saturday with Maryland and the Buckeyes, Maryland came into Saturday leading the Big Ten in both passing yards and passing touchdowns. The Buckeyes' secondary was awesome. Absolutely awesome in this game. Only gave up 196 yards through the air and one touchdown and had two interceptions. You are absolutely right, though, Alex, because it is starting to look more and more like the games versus Michigan and Penn State are going to decide the Big Ten. Those three teams have clearly been the class of this conference this year. Circle those games, no doubt about it, because one of those three teams is getting into the playoff. Alex, let's wrap up college football week six with the helmet sticker. Who's getting your helmet sticker this week? No doubt about it. One person, Christian Leary. And you know what? Let's give a double uh, helmet sticker to Haynes King and Christian Leary. Against all odds, against the unlikable opponent, against a situation that's probably in the lowest of percentile in terms of completing any type of Hail Mary pass or any type of pass to win a game after the most unlikeliest of unlikeliest turnovers. Haynes King to Christian Leary, who only had one catch for 44 yards, but it's probably the biggest catch and biggest throw, the biggest throw for Haynes King and the biggest catch in Christian Leary's collegiate career. One catch, 44 yards, a touchdown to beat Miami in a game that we can't believe how it ended. Just a boneheaded play by a really good coach, but shout out to Haynes King and Christian Leary. I was in a similar mindset when I was thinking about who I was going to give out my helmet sticker to, because I'm going with Oklahoma quarterback, Dylan Gabriel. Gabriel led a five play 75 yard drive and threw the game winner with 15 seconds left to knock off Texas had a monster game, 285 yards through the air and a touchdown, no interceptions, another 113 yards rushing. He was absolutely the best player on the field on Saturday. But I also want to give a shout out and a double helmet sticker as well, Alex, to Oklahoma left tackle Walter Rouse, who not only blocked his man on the line of scrimmage, but then blocked an outside blitzer at the same time on the final play of that game, he had one hand on each player. I'm not kidding. Go back and watch the tape, guys. Watch the final pass from Dylan Gabriel for the game-winning pass and take a look at Walter Rouse blocking two guys at the same time and giving his quarterback just enough time to step up in the pocket and make that game-winning touchdown pass. Hats off to both those guys. 
You know what? One betting, it, it, actually, it's not a betting, but it's just a friendly thing that we had about Colorado. They're up to four wins. I think me and you, Brad, had them at five wins for the most for the season, correct? I think we both said about maybe five wins. Did you say four or five, or did you say five or six? I believe I said four or five, I believe, was my prediction. Okay, so we might also have to eat some crow at some point because they're already at they're already at four wins. They have Stanford next week, then they face US, UCLA and Oregon State, then they have Arizona, where those are non ranked excuse me, Stanford and Arizona being non ranked teams. And if we're just saying just using that as a measuring stick, if they beat Stanford and Arizona, we're gonna have to eat some crow. <laughs> we're gonna have to eat some crow. But shout out to Colorado doing things that we didn't think they'd be able to do, but they're at four. I think I had, I think I was at five or six, so I'm still in the running, but it'll be interesting to watch and see. Yeah, you're right. And those are winnable games. A couple of those other games you mentioned are going to be really tough for them. But look, hats off once again to Deion Sanders and this program. He has done an incredible job. If they don't win another game all year, it's still a huge season for him in the Colorado Buffaloes because of what he's been able to do there in year one. I already think this is a huge success, but I don't think he's done yet, Alex. I think you're right. I think he has the potential to get a couple more wins and maybe go bowling this year. Time for the locks of the week. Last week, Alex, you had the New York Jets plus two and a half, and you threw in a bonus pick with the money line. You hit both of those picks. I took Louisiana Tech plus six and a half on that Thursday night game. They lost by seven. That one stings. But Alex, why don't you kick it off this week? Who do you got as your lock of the week? For my lock of the week, I am going to take the Titans over the Ravens with plus four. I like that the Titans, and I said this at the beginning of the season, that everybody's in the last year of their contract. Tannehill, Henry, and Vrabel. This team is playing their hearts out, knowing what the end of the season is going to look like, win, lose, or draw. They are a tough out wherever they go, but now the Ravens have to go to the Titans. And I don't think the Ravens are a really good team, but the Titans, they just want to brawl and they want to get in the phone booth and they want to fight no matter what. And I don't know if the Ravens are going to be able to withstand the onslaught of and barrage of uppercuts that the Titans is just simply going to come with because they take on the character of their coach. So plus four Titans. Alex, my lock of the week this week, I'm going to try to bounce back guys. I'm taking Oklahoma state plus three and a half versus Kansas. The Cowboys as a home underdog in their last nine games, they've won eight of those games outright. Oklahoma State looked really sharp versus Kansas State last week, especially the defense had three interceptions like what I've seen from them in recent games. I love a home dog, especially getting over a field goal even better. Oklahoma State plus three and a half on Saturday. You know what, Brad, going into next week, I just want to mention a few games that are going to be, I think, really good watches. I'm looking at the Commanders and I'm looking at the Commanders and Falcons, the Seahawks and the Bengals. I'm also looking at the Colts and Jaguars because that AFC South race is going to tighten up after this game. Both teams at three and two. And then also with the Titans going to the Ravens as well. They could be at three and three. And that that division is just tight all the way around. Everybody's at two and three or three and two. The Saints versus the Texans, I think, is good. And as a coach rivalry, the Patriots and Raiders, maybe the Raiders can really 
stick a fork in the Patriots season that way. And then also, lastly, the Lions versus the Buccaneers. Buccaneers coming off an early bye. They're going to get Mike Evans back. But we've talked about the Lions earlier being somebody. The team that we haven't really talked about a lot, and just because they were on the bye, is the Buccaneers being at 3-1. and one. This can be a big game for the Buccaneers to come back off of a bye week and really kind of firmly put themselves in front of everyone. And the one game I will say that, Let's just talk about from a betting perspective. Philly is giving seven points to the Jets, and they're going to New York. Now, the Jets definitely do have a good defense. However, Elijah Vera Tucker is now out for the year. Dwayne Brown is not back. And as of now, Makai Becton is holding up. So you lost your veteran leadership. You lost your best offensive line, Elijah Vera Tucker. And now here comes that defensive line in Jalen Carter and Jordan Davis to into the Meadowlands, I think I would take the oh, I would take the Eagles. I would lay the seven and take the Eagles. I think this is going to get ugly, and it's going to get ugly fast for the Jets. I like it, Alex. I was going to say, let's throw in some bonus picks here, huh? Why not? You brought up Lions Buccaneers. Buccaneers three point dog at home. Love it. I'll take Buccaneers plus three at home versus Detroit. Coming off of a bye, like you mentioned, extra time to get healthy, extra time to prepare. Love that bet as well. And here's another one, Alex. How about the Cardinals getting seven at the Rams? Look, this Cardinals team is one and four, but we know, we talked about it. They're scrappy. They're well coached and they play hard. This Rams team is good, but seven points feels like a lot of points in a divisional game versus the Cardinals team that's been hanging around in a lot of these games. Give me the plus seven with Arizona as well. There's one game. It's the Dolphins versus the Panthers. And the Pan and the as of right now, Miami is giving 13 and a half points. What do you think about that line? Oh, man, Alex, I was looking at that line. So typically you don't see a whole lot of double digit spreads, and you definitely don't see spreads that are nearing two touchdowns. I think almost any other time I would jump on that kind of points. Normally I would jump on the dog in that situation getting 13 and a half points. That's just a lot of points in any NFL game. But right now with the Dolphins offense and how explosive they are, it really scares me because last week the Giants were a huge dog as well and the Dolphins covered. And that was even a game where the Giants had multiple interceptions and a pick six and they still could not keep pace with this Dolphins offense. Normally 13 and a half, I'm jumping all over that, Alex, but the Dolphins offense going up against a team like the Panthers who are struggling to move the ball, that one really scares me. It looks like a game where Miami could really pull away. That is going to do it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it, PGF Nation. I'm Brad Fowler. He's Alex Higdon. This is Pint Glass Football, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at PGF Podcast.